As many of our listeners know, digital workplaces are in a constant state of flux. Not only are we seeing a rolling series of new applications and systems coming and going, we know that the overhead, the friction on our employees is nothing short of challenging to manage as well. But digital workplace experience layers might just be the solution to help reduce that level of friction and change. A good way to think about digital experience layers is um, to look to capabilities like digital assistants because they integrate with all enterprise systems and really serve to shield employees from the complexity and um, deliver seamless experiences that they've come to expect in the consumer world. WorkGrid, one of our podcast sponsors, is exploring the possibilities and is sharing some really great insights in a recent article called The Evolution of the Digital Workplace, Are Digital Experience Layers the Next Frontier? Highly recommend that you check it out. You'll find the link in the show notes and you can learn how to keep your workforce not only more engaged, but more productive. And now on to our episode. COVID, of course, humanized us all, right? It, it forced us to look at our own frail humanity. And ultimately, that's a good thing if we allow it to be. But as leaders, we've got to step into a role that was not on the job description when we began in leadership. As leaders, we need to take even better care of ourselves so that we can be there for the kid who needs the fairy wand and our aging parents and our employees, uh, all the people who need us in some manner. In today's episode of Digital Workplace Impact, I chatted with Gina DeLapa. Gina is a company culture expert, adjunct professor, author, and motivational speaker. I was excited to bring Gina into our podcast studio at a time when organizations are grappling with nurturing, thriving cultures that engage, inspire, and enable collaborative hybrid workplaces. Together, we explore what that should look like for organizations such as Ford Motor Company, who announced the option to work from home for some 30,000 plus employees, in sharp contrast to the likes of Microsoft, which has just invited some 60,000 plus employees back to their headquarters. The topic of this episode is what makes sense in both cases. And I think you'll come to see that uh, we talk about courage, compassion, and connection on individual team and organizational levels at the center of this dialogue. So sit back, relax, and join me now for that conversation with Gina. So Gina... Welcome to our virtual podcasting studio. I'm excited to be in conversation with you today about various aspects of company culture. And of course, I have to start this conversation by asking you how you moved into the field of company culture as an expert. Hi, Nancy. It's delightful for me to be here. And as we all know, expert is a very fluid term. I mean, I'm growing and learning all the time. It's almost embarrassing to, you know, be be called the expert. But, but yeah, you know, my first exposure to company culture really happened in childhood. It's like it, it found me. My mother and father were entrepreneurs. Um, they're still alive. My father still has that entrepreneurial streak in him. And I can remember, I mean, even before I started school, I started kindergarten, breakfast table conversations. And every night at the dinner table, while I was growing up, I would hear about 
the business, the workplace, the hirings, the firings, the whole range of human drama was was on display. And at age 10, I went to work in the business. By the way, it was a family pizza business. They, my parents started in the garage before I was born. And then it grew. It just grew and grew. It grew to 250 employees. And starting at age 10, I went to work in the business. And I'm always going to be grateful that my parents did not have me work for them or even around them. So it really allowed me to see the workplace up close from both angles, the the employer and the employee. And, and that dual framework has really stayed with me throughout my career. Um, yeah. So, I, and when I was 10, my parents sold the business to a Fortune 50 company. So that was another aspect of company culture that I got to see, um, again, at a very young and impressionable age. Well, that's quite an interesting start to your professional <laughs> career. And I know that you often talk about your mission is helping people figure out how to approach work so that it brings them joy and meaning and purpose, all key things. And in your latest book, which I believe is called Thriving at Work, you talk yes. about some lessons to help leaders and their teams get there. And I'd love to hear a little bit about some of those key lessons. Well, let's start with the, the fact, Nancy, that we spend more time at work than any other waking activity, right? So we had better find uh, our work to be a source of meaning and purpose. And I think out of meaning and purpose comes joy. And as far as how to get there, I think it starts with how we see ourselves as leaders. Do we see ourselves as I've got to just manage these people and get as much productivity from them as possible? Or do we really see ourselves as having uh, a, a noble calling? I mean, it, leadership is a noble calling. In fact, um, I don't get too much on a tangent here, but years ago I heard a preacher say, free enterprise clothes and feeds more people than all the homeless shelters and soup kitchens combined, which it's not to, to knock soup kitchens and homeless shelters. We need, we need them, but it's to say that your role as a business person, as a leader, serves a wider purpose. And so if you see yourself as a leader, someone who's an agent of hope, someone who can make the world a, a happier and more just place, not only for employees, but for their families, for the wider community, and of course, those you serve, um, you're going to approach your work very differently, almost with a, a sense of reverence and you know, it comes down to how you treat other people, how you lead, how you lead yourself. You know, are you trustworthy? Do you uh, listen when people come to you and share things or do you turn a blind eye? I mean, these are choices we have to make. But yes, in the book, I outline seven C's of effective leadership. And just briefly, they are character, competence, courage. I know you've written a lot about courage, uh, confidence, communication, class, and then the last one is credibility, which if you do the previous six, you will almost guarantee yourself to have credibility. Um, but it's really a kind of an inside out approach and you really have to bring all of you to the role. And, and what inspired your seven C's? Is it the hand of experience that you talked about deep in your family roots in, in the pizzeria? Or was that a framework that you just developed with, with time and experience? 
you know, honestly, I, I think some of it came out of seeing companies that did it right and seeing companies or leaders who, who didn't get it right. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at the downfall of major institutions worldwide, whether they're businesses or, you know, nonprofits or gosh, you know, I don't, I don't want to name names, but often it's a failure of leadership, a failure to listen. And I think how, how costly that is to, you know, human capital and, and just from a dollars and cents standpoint, it's just, it comes down to people need to be heard. They need to be valued. They need to be respected. And I think, you know, COVID has certainly cranked the volume up on all of those things. So it was a mix. It was a mix of seeing leaders who got it right and leaders who uh, maybe did not get it right. And so you, you mentioned COVID briefly, and, and I'm yeah. wondering if that sort of triggers a seventh C or, or um, influences the way in which those seven need to come together. So my question for you is, how have um, these lessons evolved in the wake of COVID? Well, I think, you know, if, if courage was among the seven C's now, it, uh, or before COVID, I think now it might be the one that drives all the others because, I mean, COVID, of course, humanized us all, right? It, it forced us to look at our own frail humanity. And ultimately, that's a good thing if we allow it to be. But as leaders, We've got to step into a role that was not on the job description when we began in leadership. We have to listen with compassion. And so I guess compassion might be a, a, another C, um, but we have to listen and lead at a whole nother, whole other deep level that we didn't before. And I guess one of my concerns is that leaders have not been equipped. I mean, they just haven't been in these waters before to know how to be empathic, how to, how to listen appropriately with compassion and, and how to um, shore up their team in these, you know, incredibly difficult times. Um, but it is something that needs to be worked on uh, constantly. And, and I don't think we're going to get there with the same set of tools that we went into COVID with. It's going to force us to expand our, our toolkit, if you will. And, and that means expanding ourselves and our own capacities. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I know from conversations that we've had with senior leaders inside of major organizations that the COVID effect has opened up a whole new level of empathy and active listening to the point that, you know, I've been in conversations with people where, you know, children have burst into the room to say, I need help finding my fairy wand or I need help logging into the computer. And people have been, you know, juggling work and life. And suddenly, you know, executives that were perceived to be in the, uh, the ivory tower suddenly have become very human. And there's a level of authenticity that has entered into the conversation in new and different ways. I've even noticed that some of these same leaders are the ones who've actually gone into their LinkedIn profiles and have changed their formal corporate headshots 
to ones that are more representative of what they look like today in casual clothes, sometimes in the case of women, makeup free, so that you can see that they are approaching their work in new and different ways. And and that authenticity, um, that level of courage has really crept in in some interesting and and positive ways. I agree, Nancy. And I think uh, we all get to be human on this bus. I think that was Anne Lamott's line. But yes, leaders included. And, And when a leader changes their profile to show a more human side. I applaud that because um, I don't think you lose credibility when you do that. I think if anything, you you say to those around you, I'm human too, and it's okay. We're here to get through this, you know, with our faults, with our baggage, with our humanness. Something I want to say about empathy, because I think this point gets lost many times. We all know empathy is important, but I have a quote on my wall from the late Nathaniel Brandon. I'm looking at it right now. It says, empathy for another has its roots in self-awareness. And I would bring that up to leaders to say, you can be so busy taking care of everyone around you that you forget you have needs. And I think that's dangerous to do. So as leaders, we need to take even better care of ourselves so that we can be there for the kid who needs the fairy wand and our aging parents and our employees, uh, all the people who need us in some manner. Um, the, the emphasis of self-care can't be stated strongly enough. Yeah. It, it reminds me of the moment when many of us would sit on an airplane at the time we were traveling. And yes. that opening line that says, make sure you put your mask on first before you help others, yes. because you can do that much more when uh, when you've administered that self-care. And so I think that's a very valuable lesson to share. I, yes, I do too. And I, when I speak on self-care, I go through a whole story about it. And, but the kind of the lesson, the punchline, if you will, is self-care is oxygen. Mm-hmm. And we don't feel guilty for taking a deep breath. Why would we feel guilty about taking care of ourselves because it's self-care not at the expense of our other commitments, but at the service of our other commitments. And I think that's a new way to frame self-care. Yeah, I agree. So let's let's take a slightly different tack. Let's bring things up from the leadership level to an organizational level. One of the hot topics among digital workplace leaders is the notion of building collaborative hybrid workplaces as the next priority. And that's not just about ruling out, you know, rolling out more tools, um, but rather there's a set of considerations that leaders need to put in play in order to nurture thriving cultures that not only engage people, but inspire them and enable them to come together to collaborate Um, in new and more productive hybrid workplaces. There's been quite a lot in the press of late about what various organizations are doing. So take Ford Motor Company as an example. They just recently made a a declaration that some 30,000 employees can opt to work from home forever. And uh, of course, there are still a great many employees who have to report to plants every day, um, in addition to, to those who are 
working from home for the long term. So I'm curious as to what you see as some of the biggest cultural hurdles for organizations like Ford to overcome during this transition stage. Yeah, that's uh, it's very deep. And I, I get a little scared almost when I hear the word forever. I heard someone say forever is a long time, especially as you get toward the end. Um, it's kind of a scary word, but I, I would say even with the 30,000 employees that uh, who can now work from home forever, there probably needs to be some requirement for showing up at the office occasionally, even if it's you know seven days out of the year, um, whatever that number is. I mean, I love working from home, but I also know there are certain things you don't get except through face-to-face. And I think anytime you've got an organization as large as Ford Motor Company, where a significant number of people can work from home and, and certain people probably have no choice, you can't build a car from your home office, uh, there's the potential for a divide. There's a potential for a culture of resentment to, to creep in. And, and so those hurdles have to be addressed up front. Um, and I think it starts with just communication and, and even the office that's left, that's going to have to be reimagined in every detail, much more central centered on centeredness on collaboration on what sociologists call human moments, because those are, that's where the collaboration happens. That's where the, the spark, the creativity that's so needed now happens. Uh, it's not going to happen all at once. You know, it's definitely a process, but uh, get people get people talking and and find out. Okay, if the work from home group is coming in, you know, again, whatever it is, six seven times a year, once a month, what's the best use of that time? And that question needs to be answered from the perspective of the work from home people and the people who are showing up to the plant every day. Um, so just yeah, much more collaboration and communication. I couldn't agree more. I was actually the first virtual employee at J.P. Morgan Chase once upon a time. And, you know, at that time, I was very often a voice in a black box, picturing speaker phones dotted through conference rooms um, around headquarters. And the thing I had to figure out as um, an individual who was working lots of different corporate initiatives as an in-house consultant of a sort, was, you know, when to come out of that voice in the black box and and be an in-person presence. And and I had to think of it along the lines of me as an individual, me as a, a leader responsible for a team, and me as a citizen of a, an organization that was a complex uh, machine um, and certainly yeah. had, you know, politics to, to factor into that. And so... Um, picking those moments that matter is critically important. And sometimes it was because that's the vitamin I needed to to have that social connection. Sometimes it was about um, making sure that the glue that held the team together as people were changing in their daily interactions or as uh, seats were changing and new players were coming into our team construct or as critical things were happening at an organizational level. And it was important to um, share important milestones or accomplishments with a wider circle of individuals to ensure that the team got due recognition or funding or, uh, you know, whatever was required at that moment in time. And so 
you know, that self-care component we were talking about earlier was important, but then translating that lens into self-care for the team and then, you know, self-care for the organization all played into that conversation as well. Well, right. And I love the multifaceted lens that you applied to that situation. And I, I go back to a time many years ago in my career, decades ago, when I was working 60 miles from, you know, from the office. And so uh, I did get to work from home part-time, like one or two days a week. And I don't think I did apply that, that multifaceted lens that you spoke of. And I kind of wish now I had, I think there were times when certain close coworkers felt, and it didn't come up often, but I can think of a coworker in particular I was close to and worked with closely who needed me to be there, I think more than I was and felt a little frustrated that I wasn't. And I wish now I had responded to that differently to say, sounds like it would mean a lot to you if I were in the office, you know, that extra day a week. Uh, and, and not just to, you see what I'm saying that you do have to look at it from how is this affecting my team? How is this affecting? I mean, I don't think it affected the quality of my work. I'm quite confident of that, but, but there was a perception there and that, that needed to be addressed. Um, so yeah, it is kind of a, a, a give and take for sure. Yeah. And I, and, and this, um, issue of perception is is one that can take on so many layers. Um, just yes. thinking back to the example we were talking about earlier with Ford Motor Company, you know, one of the challenges that can crop up is that um, those who are working from home are, are considered to be the privileged ones. And so how do organizations ensure that a microculture of classes doesn't emerge in the wake of these new sorts of long-term work-from-home arrangements? Yeah, it's, it's something that needs to be managed and addressed up front. I think one of the things a leader can do is get the team together, both the work-from-home and the, the people in the office or the plant, and say, look, we're not going to put up with a culture of classes. We need to rise above that. Um, it doesn't mean we're going to bury our concerns, but no one gets to be self-righteous here and no one gets to play victim because, you know, no one's got it easy. And look, life is hard enough. Let's let the drama come from outside the organization. In here, though, and, and by in here, I mean we as a company, regardless of where we're working, let's make the decision that, to have each other's backs because that's how we're going to be strong and competitive. And that's what I'm going to be expecting as a boss but it also comes down to you know getting it out on the table. What are your what are your concerns? Meaning the work from home people and the people working from home are look. This isn't fun. It's it's isolating. Even though I chose it, it's not easy. I don't feel like my my accomplishments are as much on display. So I feel yeah, I'm that voice in a black box. And so and, and you know and the the people showing up every day say look. I've got to commute. It's hard. I've got to juggle more. And I, I think, again, building building empathy and and really saying to the work from home group, okay, come in, see what it's like. Or if you're if you're working at the office, maybe you can take 
one or two days a month, again, come up with your own numbers, but where you work from home. And so, you know, mix it up a little bit because I think nothing uh, fosters appreciation like experiencing what someone else goes through. And, you know, it's one of those things you've got a beginning, a middle, an end, and you regenerate. And so having that candid check-in up front, but making sure those checkpoints are in along the way, and then presumably forever becomes, you know, for as long as it makes sense and seats will shift. And some people who were initially signed up for working from home will end up coming back to the office um, and and others will move into that work from home scenario. Uh, But acting as a, a, you know, a living organization that um, uh, has those checkpoints is really key. Yes, I think checkpoints is a key a key word to keep and kind of at the center of our thinking because it has to be purposeful. It has to be, you know, it has to be intentional. And it's not, like you said, it's, it's a work in progress. It's not going to all happen at once and that's okay. Just keep, keep asking, what do we need to do next? Keep asking, um, you know, what's the next, the, the next milestone here. And, you know, and you will see, changes for the better. You will see improvements. Um, but yeah, see it as, uh, yeah, it's a marathon, not a sprint or not a, just a checkbox. So let's contrast that a little bit with companies like Microsoft, who've just invited close to 60,000 staff members to come back to headquarters. Um, of course, they'll continue to have large remote workforces uh, alongside these individuals coming back to the office. What do you think they need to do to ensure a positive company culture in those instances? Well, I like the word invite, and I hope and trust it truly is an invitation. I worked in academia for a number of years, and sometimes the invitations were really a summons. So I think it's important to know if it is truly, but even if it is truly uh, an invitation, and I will take that at face value that it is, recognize there's going to be an adjustment uh, and allow for that. It's not going to be like, we're going to get things right back to where they were in February 2020. That world is gone and the world has changed. We've all changed inside. So to, to ensure a positive company culture, the first thing I would do is Uh, reimagine the office in every detail. And again, uh, centered on creating more collaboration. Um, And you can read a book like The Best Place to Work by Ron Friedman. He wrote this before the pandemic, but he's really got a lot of good information in there about how to create workplaces where communication happens and, and spontaneous moments of collaboration. And, and, you know, it could be, say, putting a whiteboard. I I read about a company that did this. They put a whiteboard about a particular key project in a central location where people walking by could read it, could could add to it. And it sparked, uh, you know, in the moment conversations and collaboration. You know, maybe it's something like getting rid of the drab gray walls and, and, you know, making the, the workplace a more aesthetic place to be. I mean, these things matter. I've worked in places that had gray walls and kind of Holiday Inn-esque artwork, which is fine for the Holiday Inn, but it doesn't necessarily 
blast people out of bed and make them excited about going to work every day. And then I, I think the, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but leaders need to, again, kind of turn up the volume on uh, things like appreciation. I like to say, if show more appreciation than you think is necessary, and then you're probably showing enough. And if we had to dip into the world of the digital workplace, what mm-hmm. advice would you have for, for those leaders who are really looking after the online services inside of companies that have things like digital bulletin boards and whiteboards and and the like and and have an important role to play here? I think the, the best things leaders can do for themselves and their teams is not assume that they need to have all the answers themselves and what an unburdening that is. It's really kind of counterproductive. Uh, again, it's simple framework, ask, listen, respond. Uh, sometimes the frustration in organizations comes when a, a leader comes in and says, okay, I, I know what everyone needs here. They need, you know, Trivial Pursuit Fridays or, or Bring Your Pet to Work Day or these things that don't really address the, the problem at hand. So the alternative to that is get together with your team and, and ask them, what do you need from me to do your best work. And you'll probably hear very simple things. Hey, we need a new printer. Uh, We need better internet. And I know we've gotten past the stage for the most part of, you know, we've got the tools, the tech tools for the most part up and running, but you know, maybe, maybe people want, uh, I don't know, more flexibility at work, but find out. You don't have to have it, the answers all yourself, but you know, ask good questions, listen to the answers and follow through. Um, yeah, it's just, that's where I would, would start. People are hungry to be heard. Hearing you speak makes me think that one of the strongest partnerships that needs to be forged next inside the senior leadership ranks of an organization is a coming together of CIOs with um, the chief people officers, because the employee experience is one that not only needs to transcend the technology, um, but um, those human connections, both, you know, at an individual and team level, but also at the organizational. Yeah, absolutely, Nancy. And I would add to that, uh, and I'm I'm pretty sure you'll agree here, that employee experience that you speak of, that needs to be looked at through the lens of the employee, not the lens of the, you know, senior leadership. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, it's not to, to say that it's us versus them, but, you know, for example, do, you know, if, you've, if you're trying to have a diverse workplace where people feel uh, that this is an equitable place and that there's inclusion and that they have a voice, well, what would the people for whom you're creating these initiatives, what would they say about it? Because that's what, that's where it counts. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I guess just in our final minutes together, Gina, yes. my moment of wonderment uh, continues. And I'm curious as to what is the question that you think digital workplace leaders should be asking themselves now. And of course, if you formulate the question, you have to answer it. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is very deep, as you know, 
I, I think I would ask, there are so many questions here to be asked, you know, and this requires some soul searching on the leader's part, but I would start by asking, am I giving my team and myself the tools, motivation, and inspiration they need to thrive in this new environment? And I would say, make it a yes. Do what it takes. Um, again, you're going to have to ramp up your own self-care, your own self-awareness, and that's going to mean being vulnerable. Maybe it's you know, getting, getting a coach, getting a therapist, whatever it takes so that you can be there for your team uh, to meet these new challenges because they're going to continue. And, and, you know, uh, it, it's only going to get probably more complex. So again, I'll repeat the question. Am I giving my team and myself the tools, motivation, and inspiration they need to thrive in this new environment? And I would say again, make it a wholehearted yes. Excellent. Thank you so much, Gina. This has been quite an interesting exploration of building thriving company cultures. And I look forward to continuing to follow your work in this space. Likewise, Nancy, it was a pleasure. And I hope to, uh, I hope our paths cross again soon. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the show, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com forward slash DWG underscore. Score podcast. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.